0: I'm looking out, and, and what's, what's different for me is I'm not unaccustomed to seeing all of your faces. I'm unaccustomed to seeing them at the same time, and some of you have been displaced, and you have graciously found another nest, and, uh, and so that's good. So before you leave today, get your pencil out and mark your name <laughs> where you're sitting now. <laughs> to guarantee it for next week. Uh, I don't know. I, I hope that, that my experience today is uh, what you are experiencing as well, and that um, that it has, it has served to inspire your heart. <clears throat> the overwhelming number of opinions and agendas that are present in modern culture serves to highlight the growing division that exists among people of all walks of life. It doesn't matter what category you choose to speak, you'll find that what I've just said is true in all of them. This condition has caused a cultural paralysis that has prevented us from any sort of meaningful progress Again, in all areas of life. doesn't matter whether you're talking about government or business. Even churches find themselves mired in a quagmire of confusion and a cycle of conflict. Jesus is increasingly calling people to Himself, but the arguments over His origin, His authority, His identity, and His intentions... I've created a stir of interest, but also opposition, with little, if any, meaningful progress. The last portion of John chapter 7 illustrates the division among the people regarding who Jesus is and why he has come, to the point that it is even difficult or hard to hear what he has to say because of all of the conflicted voices that are chiming along. This is a challenge we all deal with. When we read the Bible or when we hear it proclaimed, we, we may get the message, but then we start to hedge and wonder, well, what about this or what about that? And along the way, while we're trying to dig out the details of a particular word or sentence or phrase or paragraph... What we're actually doing is we're missing the truth of the message, which has little to do with the details that we so often become fixated on, and has everything to do with the Savior for whom they represent. What I want to challenge us today to do is to draw attention to Jesus, to see the struggle that the world was having, trying to embrace and understand who He really is and why He's really there. And then I want us to consider from our own perspective, who's Jesus in your life? Who is he really and and why is he here? Why is he working in your heart, in your mind? What is he drawing you to? Is it salvation? Is it a public demonstration like baptism? Is it a break with some sort of sinful reality that you've struggled under for a long time? Is it a relational issue that needs to be mended or one that needs to be embraced? What is it that Jesus is doing? Don't get caught up in the the crazy that is so often screaming in our ears to the point that you cannot hear the still, small voice of truth. In the midst of all of this confusion, Jesus speaks with increasing urgency regarding the necessity of genuine belief in him, is the only means of eternal life. It is only when the noise of conflict ceases to take center stage that we can hear the message of Jesus calling us to life. When we ignore the human perspectives that vie for our attention, we will realize, hearing the voice of the Savior, that no one ever spoke like this. What Jesus has to say, is unlike anything you've ever heard. The text that I take the title from, No One Ever Spoke Like This Man, comes from John chapter 7 in verses 32 through 53. As we come to the conclusion of this chapter, often referred to as the bread discourse. Uh, It involves so much of this and then has moved into the celebration of the feast of booths and so this feast discourse has been occupying most of the background to everything we've read in chapter 7. In verse 32 we find first of all that there is described for us an eternal destination. Look at what he says in verse 32 the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. the confusion, but you can also hear the conflict. In verse 32, the energy of interest in Jesus among the people at the Feast of Booths is causing the Jewish leaders to become alarmed to the point where now they want Jesus incarcerated. They send the officers of the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin to go and arrest him. These are people that would have been in the service of the temple. They most likely would have been Levites. They would have had some role uh, in various services and ministries that took place at the temple, but primarily they were there for the purpose of security. And so they had some authority under the Romans in order to ensure that peace reigned supreme in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They are going to go and arrest Jesus and bring him before the Sanhedrin. And this is the order that is sent. But now we don't hear from them again. We'll go through all the way to verse 45 before we will see them again. And they will have nothing else to do with this. In verse 33 and in 34... He tells us then that Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer than I'm going to him who sent me. Jesus has been teaching them repeatedly about the fact that he came from the Father in order to validate not only his ministry, his mission, his redemptive plan and purpose, but also to validate his identity as the son of God, his authority as God himself. All of this has been very clearly stated, and John has repeated it on numerous occasions. This is the first time that he records for us a word from Christ in which he says he's going to the Father. He's not talking about his origin. Now he's talking about his ultimate destination. When the guards arrive, Jesus is still teaching the people. We don't hear anything from them, but Jesus declares that he's only going to be with them a little longer. You see, because this is the Feast of Booze which takes place at harvest time, it remembers the struggle that the Jews had as they crossed the wilderness under Moses' leadership. They lived in tents. They lived in in booths that they built or small shelters. uh, Some of the translations use the word shelter that could be torn down and transported and set up again. And so the people would come and for a week They would live in tents and they would live in these small structures and shelters and they would celebrate with water offerings and sacrifices and worship every single day. And it was a week-long celebration and recognition and acknowledgement. That's what's going on. It always happens in the fall. Jesus is going to die in the spring. His time is short. It's only six months before the crucifixion. They didn't know that, but he certainly did. The sense of urgency overshadows the message of Christ. That urgency is missed by most because of the constant arguments over things that don't matter. Jesus is desperately trying to cut through the noise and to help them to see your time is short. (laughs) What if we were to take that and apply it? Time is short. How many times have you made a comment after the passing of a friend or community member that came unnaturally soon? You said something like, his time was short. He was so young. It seems like she was just getting started. And it almost hits us like a shock. The problem is that we should live with that kind of urgency, but the routine of life and the demands of it so often pull us back into that routine and rut. I'm not telling you that that isn't inevitable and that we don't all live that way. We, we do, and it is. What I'm telling you is that we need moments like this where we hear the voice of the Savior saying to us, your time is short. What are you doing with it? How are you utilizing it? What is it that remains incomplete in your life? And what will you do to correct? Jesus informs them that he's going back to the one that had sent him. Jesus had told them many times he came from the Father, but now he speaks of returning to the Father to direct them to his ultimate destination. His destination, he will later say, Where I am, you will be also. He's teaching that where he's going, we cannot come as a way of adding to the urgency of his message and providing additional information regarding this destination. In other words, you can't go to heaven on your own merit or with your own ability. You can't come except by the acknowledgement and acceptance of the gift of grace found only in Jesus. What we just remembered must be realized in the life of every person who would ever hope to spend eternity in heaven. I realize that theology is being rewritten and adjusted in our world today in so many different ways that it is not only uh, repulsive, but it is in fact an abomination the reason for that is because what we are doing is we are taking the love of God, we are taking the grace of God, and we are taking the mercy of God, and then we are lopping off the judgment and authority of God. We are keeping only those elements that we find acceptable, and we are removing those that we do not when we do not tell the whole truth, when we do not proclaim the entire counsel of God, then we leave people with a limited understanding that can mistakenly guide them to a false belief that everything will be okay somehow, way. When we hear so clearly the words of Jesus saying, I am only with you for a short time. Pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm going where you can't come. There isn't any way by your own ability, by your own hard work, your own good deeds, your own associations and memberships, there isn't any way that any of that can ever bring you home. It is only through faith in Jesus alone. The contrast in verses 35 and 36 between the earthly and the spiritual become evident. It remains a stumbling block, however, to the hearers. Notice what they say. They said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Is he going to go to the dispersion, to the Greeks? Jews have been dispersed among the Roman world as a result of persecutions a variety of times throughout their history. And so there are now Jews living not just in Palestine, but all over the the Roman world. And so he says, are you going to send him there? And if he goes there among the Greeks and preaches to them or talks to them or ministers to them, will he minister to the Greeks as well? This was meant as a slur. This was meant as a, a slap in the face. I mean, does he have so little regard for our laws and our teachings that he would imagine that the... The God that we serve is available to be given to everybody? How ridiculous. The judgmentalism that is there shows that there's a closed mind that is no longer open to truth. When we become so entrenched in our own convictions to the degree that we no longer can see beyond those limitations, then we will never know what God's doing in the moment. You have to battle it. Why? Because familiarity is comfort, isn't it? Take our current experience. How long has it been since your shoulder touched the shoulder of another member of this church? A while. There hasn't been a need for that kind of closeness. They tell us that if we put you together like this and fill up this room, that you're not going to come back. Because it's too uncomfortable. Is it? Americans are known for needing a certain degree of personal space that the rest of the world doesn't know. I'm, I'm among them. And yet, what I'm telling you is that when we allow personal comfort, when we allow consistency or routine, tradition or familiarity, to take precedent over truth In Jesus. We find ourselves in a similar place as the Pharisees who did not understand the spiritual ministry of Jesus and saw only the limited earthly ministry. Where's he going? And how is it that he could say that he can go somewhere where we can't find him? It is ironic that he would say that he's going to the Greeks when it would be only a very short time before the Holy Spirit would descend upon the disciples and the proclamation of the gospel would go forth in the streets of Jerusalem and thousands and thousands and thousands every day would give their hearts and lives to Jesus And then those same thousands would eventually be dispersed and distributed throughout that Roman world. And the entire world at that time would start to hear the message of Jesus and believe. They could not have foreseen that, but it's not lost on us today that John, writing much later, probably from some place that was dominated by Greek culture included this under the inspiration in order to show that what was laughable to them in that moment would become reality in the very near future. So we see the eternal destination of Jesus is presented in a way that brings to a close some of the conversation, and yet still the confusion remains. In verses 37 through 39, Jesus offers a public invitation. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet... The Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That last verse is John's explanation uh, to those who would read his gospel so that they could be assisted in understanding. So Jesus goes on the last day of the feast. They would go every single day of the feast and they would draw water from the pool of Siloam. And the priest would hold the water up and the priest and the Levites would lead the procession and the people of the city would gather and they would follow them from there to the temple to the great altar. And there the water would be poured out as a libation offering and then the sacrifice would be made and the celebration would continue that day. But on the seventh day, they did the same procedure, but they did it seven times. So back and forth this procession goes as they celebrate the water. It was something that they were reminded that God had provided for them out of the rock in a desert wilderness to ensure not only their survival but their fruitfulness. In the same regard, they acknowledged that the harvest that they were blessed to receive that year had come as a result of God's providence as he sent the rain That gave growth to that harvest. And the water Jesus has used as an example or illustration, metaphor of life is prolific throughout the Old Testament. And the streams of living water, Isaiah, the psalmist, on and on it goes. There are so many different verses and while he quotes none of them, he speaks of all of them. And as the fulfillment of every reference to eternal life that we find associated with water, Jesus says, I, I am the fulfillment of all of that. He calls out with a loud voice. He gets their attention. He demands that they hear what he has to say. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus speaking loudly in the hearing of all that were gathered at this high moment of the celebration in the context of the water. As he quotes from Isaiah and the other prophecies, his words cut through the confusion to offer hope for those who thirst for truth and deliverance. The living water that He offers is not unlike that which He offered to the woman of Samaria. And we are reminded it is the only source of true eternal life. Water is important, isn't it? There was a time where I didn't drink enough of it. And, uh, and so I found that in order to maintain awareness of how much water i'm drinking i needed a container that i could fill up and know that you know by the middle of the day that container needs to be empty fill it up again and by the end of the day that needs to be empty again and that will get me the amount of water i need now i do it sometimes i don't do it every time i do it sometimes not every day it's the same one that i carry with me here uh someone said you know Do you get that thirsty? Well, yeah, I do. I'm not thirsty, I'm dry. Uh, What I'm doing right now, running my mouth the way I do all the time, leaves it dry and it dehydrates me. That's just a minor example of the necessity of water. You realize that you can live almost two and a half weeks without food. That you can only live a maximum of three days without water. Water is vital. And as a result of that, it is representative of the flowing eternal life that we experience in Jesus. But there is nowhere that it becomes more prominent than when we get to the book of Revelation and the return of Jesus and in the images of the eternal glory of God in heaven itself. What do we see? We see a river of life that flows through the middle of the city that comes from the throne of God himself. Jesus says, are you thirsty? Not for another drink, but are you thirsty for life? The reason people do not take the water that he offers is because they're looking for some sort of earthly manifestation and they don't understand that what is genuinely needed and what the the thirst of the soul is truly representing is an emptiness within that can be filled only only by Christ himself. So he says to those who are thirsty, come to me and drink. You'll get all that you need. The water will not only provide the spiritual, for the spiritual thirst of the one who drinks, but notice what happens. A transformation occurs so that the inward person now becomes a source. And he says it springs up within us so that we become a source of life for others who will do likewise. So the water that Jesus gives is representative of the eternal life of salvation that transforms the believer so that we now become a vessel being poured out of that with that salvation to those around. The living water that he offers is, is so similar to what he has been talking about, but now he's talking about it as transforming us and making us an instrument of his grace as well. John offers the explanation, as I mentioned before, in verse 39, by saying that the coming of the Holy Spirit, when He comes to take up residence in the hearts of the redeemed, He hasn't done that yet, but the water that He speaks of and the evidence springing up within us, all of that is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only affects the transformation of the saved, but also seals us for eternity while gifting us for the ministry of Of the gospel. The gospel has always been distributed in the world. Person to person. Someone said, well what about the great crusades? Yes. But do you know that every crusade that Billy Graham ever preached. Began over a year before the first session. And he would send teams of people to the communities surrounding the area where the crusade was to be held. He would enlist pastors and church members from all of the local congregations to gather into teams in order to encourage the people that they knew to go and invite somebody to come to that crusade. So that when you would see the droves of people, the throngs of people coming forward at the end of that message to receive Christ, what you were seeing was half of them were coming to be saved. The other half were accompanying the people that they had brought and had shared the gospel with. Very few people were saved because they heard Billy Graham's preaching alone almost all of them were saved because a friend invited them, a loved one invited them, someone shared the gospel with them and affirmed them. The gospel has always been transmitted person to person. And it is the only way The wellspring of life that wells up in the believer is not just to provide you with comfort so that you will escape hell when the time comes that you die. It is in you in order to transform you so that you become more and more the image of Christ himself, and thus you become the attraction to the truth for a world that is lost, because trust me, in the crazy that is all around us right now, there are those who thirst living water you're it we are it finally verses 40 through 53 brings this to a close the officers came to the chief priests and pharisees who said to them why did you not bring him remember the officers the beginning they were sent to arrest jesus now they've come back they have been listening to Jesus the whole time that this discourse has been going on. Now they've come back to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees said, why didn't you bring them? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. We didn't bring him because we were too enamored with what he was saying. Now they didn't offer a, a profession of faith or a public commitment to follow Jesus, but you can tell that they were more taken and captivated by what Jesus said than they were afraid of what the Pharisees were saying. He says, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in Him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The scene, as it returns to this debate, the officers who come back to the Jewish leaders without Jesus or question for the reason of their failure, they replied that Jesus has spoken in a manner unlike anything they've heard. The implication is that Jesus was not like any other man, and his words were not words of this world. While they did not openly profess to believe in him, the implication is that in fact they did. The rulers rebuke them for their failure and point out that he cannot be the Christ because they haven't believed in him. They condemn the crowd as a curse, meaning that they are fools for following Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and warn you in advance that if you become that wellspring of life and you start to share that message of the gospel, there are some people that you're going to share it with or that are going to know that you did that are going to call you fools. Jesus said they opposed me, they'll oppose you as well. He's talking about the they who are dominated by the evil of Satan and sin. But in spite of the opposition that he faced, he persevered in the truth and God would ultimately be victorious. The same is true for every believer who will persevere in the truth and share the gospel. In verse 50, Nicodemus speaks up with a word of correction. He'd gone to him before and he was one of them. And he said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. And so they left. They based everything on their very limited understanding and instead of following the truth, they relied on themselves with intent to silence Jesus. I know that it's hard sometimes to embrace what God is calling us to because of the cost of it. And every, every commitment to Christ will come with a cost. But I'm telling you, don't, don't silence the voice of truth. Don't silence the voice of the Spirit that is at work in you right now. Listen to what He has to say. Be obedient to His call. Follow His you.